Stop the presses. We have one hell of a big news story in Ohio. Amy Acton might run for the Senate. So much to unpack there. It's the first thing we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm here with my colleagues who are experts on these topics, and it's always fun to have conversations with Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Bernowski. Hell of a news day yesterday, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a little lively. It was Tuesday news day. It was crazy. It was wild. So let's let's get to it. We had a politics bombshell Monday with the news that Rob Portman will not seek another term next year. And then we had a huge news story again on Tuesday with the news of who might run to replace him. Jane Cahoon, everything changed with this story. (laughs) Yeah, well, you kind of gave it away there at the beginning of the podcast. (laughs) This is this could really be a game changer. Uh, So Dr. Amy Acton, you know, beloved by many when she was the director of the Ohio Department of Health and she guided Ohio through the early days of the coronavirus pandemic is considering getting into the race on the Democratic side. And apparently this is something she's been thinking about even before Rob Portman announced that he wasn't seeking reelection, or at least Democrats had been encouraging her on this front or trying to recruit her. You know, she would... The, <laughs> There are lots of reasons why she would be a game changer, but she she's the first potential candidate who's both prominent, you know, pretty much a household name in Ohio, but also a, a non-politician, uh, not not anybody who's like a partisan toady. And and she's got all sorts of qualities that would make her a great candidate. She's intelligent. She's strong. She's got candor and compassion, and she's a great communicator. She's got a high public approval rating. She's, Higher than Mike DeWine's yeah, at the she's, of his. She's got a huge fan club that still exists and a compelling life story, having come out of poverty and a, and a broken home to become a successful physician and public health expert. Um, she's worked, you know, she's a Democrat who's worked effectively for a Republican governor and She's the director now of this kindness initiative for the Columbus Foundation, um, and she's somebody who's gotten national attention. So she could attract oh, national yeah. donors, which which Ohio Democrats need need badly. All right, I know um, I know Laura and Chris are going to want to weigh in on this, but but I wanted to address one thing first because it came up almost immediately with a number of people, and it was this idea that she doesn't have the stomach for it because she wilted away from her job in the face of opposition. And none of us believed that at the time. We, we, all, we all heard and speculated that she left because Mike DeWine stopped listening to the scientists, was opening the state prematurely, creating a surge, and she didn't want to be tied to that. And, you know, I, I've never seen her as the shrinking violet. She's as tough as nails. What I really appreciated about her, if you guys remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, we were ahead of everybody on on the fact this was coming. There were other journalists in town making fun of us for making too much of the pandemic. I wish I had that stuff on, on recorded because it, like, <laughs> yeah. it did t- kind of turn into a big story. So one of our first things was to call her out because the, the Ohio Department of Health was releasing information on the on the pandemic twice a week, which was ridiculous. I mean, it's like this is coming. It's coming down the tracks like a freight train. She came in to see us, said, you're right. 
we need to be much more transparent. She made fun of me because I was all in on the pandemic, although, you know, I was right. And <laughs> and we all thought the world of her. I mean, she impressed everybody in that room with the 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 power of her words, the care she had for Ohio. I mean, I I never have seen her as somebody that that ran away from protesters. I saw her as somebody that was like, I'm a scientist. We're not following science. I'm out of here. Right. And, and as you said, you know, because we kind of called her out on that, she didn't just like shut us out or anything. She confronted it head on and, and, you know, came right there to see us when we still had the benefit of in-person meetings. She is, she is a fascinating, I mean, if, if John Houston runs, they were on the stage <laughs> together for all those briefings. Plus she knows that John Houston was probably in the background saying, governor, we got to take a small care of a small business. We can't keep the state closed down. You know, even though we saw some big surges following that reopening, uh, the, the, the other thing that I wonder is, you know, she, she's such a decent human being when in those briefings, she she just had empathy for Ohio. She talked about the science, but she she rallied people. People loved her. How do you, if you're Jim Jordan or somebody running against her who was schooled in the in the area of nasty, mean spirited politics, how do you throw any darts at her? You're going to look bad by doing so. Right. Yeah, I was just I've been sort of going through all the potential Republican candidates in my head, wondering how they would match up. And I mean, he is so pugilistic and and partisan, you know, I, I and she's just the total opposite. So I just don't know. Or somebody like a Jim Renacci, who's kind of the, the same way, you know, like, but I'm. Uh... I made a joke like it would be like attacking Mother Teresa. I mean, you, just, you just don't want to do it. Laura Johnston, didn't people go out as in Halloween as Amy Acton? Didn't we see some stories about that, that she became this role model for young girls who all want to be doctors? Well, it wasn't just Halloween. I mean, we saw the videos on the briefings where you had little girls preschool age in white coats saying, you know, they wanted to be like her. They, they, you remember she had the saying, you know, Don, not all superheroes wear capes or Don your mask, Don your cape. And, and it was this idea that she was inspiring people to be good and to stay home and to take care of each other. And that's, you know, I know DeWine's had his like disappointed dad talk with us a couple of times, but nobody else <laughs> inspired Ohio like Amy Acton. And you hit the nail on the head when you said she had a fan club. I mean, People just adored her no matter – I mean, I'm sure obviously she had a lot of, of personal attacks. There were some really awful things said about her. But for the most part, no matter what your partisan politics, you respected her and and the way that she talked to Ohioans directly. And I mean – I just, she captured this moment. You know, I think it would, she, it's, she's not a, she's not speaking down to people. She inspires them. And I think that would attract a lot of voters. Chris Wernowski, she had gun toting people protesting outside her home. I mean, it wasn't, it, she, she did have some opposition that was caustic. I mean, I don't think any, anybody would be comfortable having gun toting protesters outside their home. But you still, you didn't get the sense that's why she left, right? I mean, you got the sense she left because the administration was going the other way. Do you see that kind of causticness coming at her again? Yeah, you still see it. And and her, I, I think what was interesting about the end of her tenure was sort of seeing how they boxed her out when it came to those briefings. You know, her her 
her participation in them sort of they ramped it down toward the end of her tenure there. And she, she would take days off and she wouldn't be there. And in, in hindsight, you have to kind of wonder if that was because of her rejection of, of the, the overall plan of how to reopen the state and everything. And I, and I think, I think that part of, of what she does have to consider is, I, I, and I think a lot of politicians have to consider is, do I want to put my family through this? And do I want to put everything through this? But to, to talk about what this, this potentially means for this race, it, you know, think about the money, think about the, the, the visibility that she has as a, almost a celebrity of sorts. She, she, she has the potential to, to bring in a lot of money uh, and a lot of attention to a race where the Democrats in the state desperately need it. I, and, and, you know, Nan Whaley can't run for, for the Senate and governor and, and they need somebody who is, I, you know, she's from the Mahoning Valley, if I'm correct. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. important. You know, that, that means a lot to Democrats and politicians in this state, you know, that, that that's a, that's a block of voters that, that Democrats desperately need. And, and that I don't think somebody like, you know, it's, it's like her and Tim Ryan who, you know, he probably burns himself out by trying to run for everything. She, she is new. She is fresh. And if you look at the response to this story on social media, people are, are eager for somebody like that to, well, to, they want to vote for somebody like that. Right. They, 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 are, they, they want that. The amount of people I know who are like, I will go out and canvas for her right. if, if it happens. It's, it's interesting to see that enthusiasm change. Got to cut you off, Chris. We're running out of time. Right. I do want to point out that we were the ones that broke that story. Seth Richardson did. A lot of reporters are chasing it. Could not get it. The pros at Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer did. You're listening to this week at the CLE. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish undermining the deliberate public process he agreed to for selecting a site for the new jail and trying to ram it into East Cleveland? Our Johnson, this was another eye-opening story that we brought to people yesterday that he is, in fact, doing that. What are the details? Yeah. So while the committee was considering locations for this new county jail, uh, Budish secretly asked consultants to target possible sites in East Cleveland. And so they they got there to the meeting. And then there were two sites in East Cleveland, a former dump and another site that would require uprooting 70 homeowners that don't appear to meet the key criteria that the committee members had approved in November that it's not centrally located and that it's logistically a bad choice because no major street or highway provides easy access for people that do business at the jail. And there are a couple of high profile people that are criticizing uh, Budish's actions here. County Councilman Mike Gallagher and County Prosecutor Prosecutor Michael O'Malley saying he improperly bypassed the committee, went behind people's back. And, um, O'Malley called the idea illogical, misguided, and not practical. Well, Budish's chief of staff said, no, no, it's going to be made by the committee. There are 28 possible sites and nobody's trying to undermine anybody. All right. So let's take this. There's three points that are worthy of discussion here. One, before this committee had had its first meeting, a committee that Budish agreed would use deliberation and real criteria to identify the best sites for this. He went out with a real estate company and said, find me places in East Cleveland and argued it was for economic development. That's not the way it's supposed to work. That makes the people that agreed to work with you collaboratively feel betrayed. And it's yet another example of Armin Budish's very bad leadership style. The second point, though, is what what O'Malley said. 
logistically. There's no highway that goes to East Cleveland. So it's a long ride from downtown. The lawyers that need to meet with the prisoners would have to go a long way. People, the police in Strongsville who want to drop off a prisoner at the jail would lose huge amounts of time navigating through mostly uh, pothole filled streets to get there. It doesn't make any any sense. But the third thing, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about this, is what it says to the people of East Cleveland. You know, if you spend any time in on the east side of Cleveland, you know that the neighborhoods around the juvenile justice center that was built out there don't see that as, as great economic development. They see it as a symbol of failure. It's mostly filled with young black men and everybody who wakes up to see that is is reminded every day of, of that status. Wouldn't putting the jail in East Cleveland make the same statement to the people of East Cleveland? I mean, I think so. And I remember when they were building the Juvenile Justice Center and, you know, they had this, you know, brand new building, nine stories tall, and it, it towers above anything out there. They, they said it was going to like people were going to build coffee shops and there would be businesses. And instead, all it is is like a parking lot where they charge people $2 to park. And yeah, it seems, I mean, the idea that you want to put this justice center jail on a former dump i mean come on or displace 70 homeowners it they it literally makes no sense and on top of the fact that yeah it's not convenient at all but it it seems like a, an insult to to east cleveland you know what's interesting is this discussion we're having right here that's what the committee was supposed to do so if budish would have gone to the committee in their first meeting and said hey i'm thinking about east cleveland the the people on the committee would have had this discussion. They would have talked about, well, logistically, Armin, that could be a problem. It's way out of town. And, you know, symbolically, you're dumping on the most impoverished town in Cleveland with a jail. Is that the statement you want to make? But he didn't give them the chance because he just went out on his own and said, find me some sites. Now they're trying to pull it back. You also didn't mention Bill Mason didn't spend a whole lot of time dealing with the idea of the undermining of the committee, instead complaining that the committee talked about this. Right. You know, it's like attack the messenger, don't deal with the message. Chris Ronowski, it's kind of interesting that Michael Malley and Bill Mason are on opposite sides of this. Yeah. I, I, Michael Malley is kind of a protege of Bill Mason. And and I think what is stunning is is really sort of seeing them be on the opposite side of something like this. But I think logistically, Budish's Beachwood would make much more sense. If you're, a highway, <laughs> if you're a highway, I mean, you can convert them all. I mean, look, it is, you're right. I mean, this is insulting. It it really, if if this was serious, this is, this is a slap in the face to people in a community that has struggled deeply, deeply as a result of this. I don't know. Stuff like this just kind of makes me sick to my stomach because- if this proposal was in in a place like Beachwood or something else, it would be hell no, not in my backyard. And 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 it really does kind of show that people in positions like this thumb their nose at people who are struggling and people who are impoverished and people who are are living in communities for no fault of their own. So, wow, Chris, that is that is such a great way to put that in perspective. That is, that's a brilliant thing. Put it in Beechwood and see what happens and then think about what it means in East Cleveland. Mike Gallagher said, hey, Armin, you want to do economic development in East Cleveland? Do real economic development in East Cleveland. A jail is not economic development in East Cleveland. It's well, like, right. But they'll make, argue, they'll make an argument that it's jobs. But we, ha we had to write about how poorly paid jailers were in this jail for the county to give them enough money to try to attract decent people to work at the jail. 
And so, you know, don't, don't feed me this line of BS that job it's job creation or whatever. It's not, it's not the kind of jobs you want. Look, I lived in rural communities where prisons were sold as a big economic boon for communities. And they weren't, they really were not. And, and so to, to say that that would be something beneficial to a place like East, East Cleveland is, is crap. It, you know, it really is. We, you gave me an idea for a story. We should go out and find the 70, 80, 90 neighbors of Armin Budish and ask them, hey, what would you feel like if you were kicked out of your house so they could build a jail here? <laughs> that's what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, let's uproot them. Let's move them there. It's kind of mind boggling. But I don't think that was even considered. And of course, because it was not placed before the committee. Armin Budish doesn't appear to have much empathy, so he didn't see it. But I think the other committee members would hopefully the publicity about this it was a very good story by Courtney Astolfi will force this back into the proper process and Armin Budish will stop undermining the whole process that he had agreed to. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What was one of the tactics that First Energy's dark money paid for in 2018 in the attempt to torpedo competitor Cleveland Public Power? Chris Ranowski, this was story number three yesterday that blew my doors off. John Caniglia put this together, really getting deeper into this whole such sinister campaign by First Energy through this seemingly do-gooder nonprofit was actually trying to to take out the competition with dark money. What did uh, John report? Right. So if you were like me and you lived in a Cleveland public power district while the back in, in 2018 in the run up to the uh, the bailout of First Energy and its its subsidiaries, nuclear plants, you received a bunch of flyers stuffed in your mailbox that were really alarmist, really, you know, touting weird conspiracies about Chinese takeovers of, of utilities. And and that was all paid for by dark money that came from First Energy, passed through uh, some nonprofits that it ran, then passed on to another nonprofit known as Consumers Against Deceptive Fees. First Energy spent about $200,000 funneled into that organization. And we had John, John talk to Mike Polensic, who who's uh, Collinwood Ward has the greatest concentration of CPP residents in the city with about 9,000 customers. And, and they were just peppered over and over again with these flyers that, that were really alarmist. And he said that people started calling me about them and, and there was some real concern about it. So, you know, what this, what this illustrates is, is that, you know, there was something really kind of deceptive going on with consumers against deceptive fees and how they were sort of trying to sour people's opinions about CPP, which, you know, some people will argue like you don't really have to do a lot of work to sour people on CPP, but it, it, it takes on kind of a, a sleazy air when you realize that if first energy money is behind this, they're doing this for a reason. And it was probably to try to muscle CPP out of, out of existence so it could take its customers and, and make more money. 
Well, the, the, this isn't the first time that First Energy's dark money resulted in really sleazy mailers, is it, Jane Cahoon? Remember the China mailers? <laughs> no, the Chinese scare tactics about, you know, your your power companies are going to be run by communists. You know, it, it was over it was, the top, yeah, over were the top. Deep red and China is going to take over the nuclear <laughs> plants. And, I mean, First Energy is really turning out to be probably the most sleazy company in the history of this state. And yet... <laughs> And yet, our legislature has not repealed the corrupt bill that started it all. Uh, it was interesting. We have a uh, op-ed from Nan Whaley that published today online and in The Plain Dealer calling on them yet again to fix this sleazy deal. Uh, John Canigli is not finished, right, Chris? He's, he's digging deeper into this phony nonprofit and what it was doing. Yeah, we're, we're, still, we're still looking into it. It's, it's a... It's almost a full-time job, First Energy now. And uh, <laughs> but if you if you forgot what the uh, what the flyers look like, we do have some examples on his story online. Um, I'm, I've started to call them Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and Exhibit C because I assume they'll they'll be in court at some point with these. But but <laughs> and I wish I'd saved them. They were they're, they're collectors items now. They're part of one of the largest corruption scandals in Ohio history. So do you think um, Retzel and Andrus will ever make a comment on the record? They represented this bogus nonprofit. And every time we call them, they say, oh, we, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about our clients, but they're a signature law firm in town. They were involved in what looks like a pretty big scam. Don't they kind of have a duty now to explain what the hell they were doing? I mean, not to us. <laughs> you know, they, can, they can no comment all they want, but you know, at some point somebody with a little, with with more uh, legal authority might come knocking on their door and 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 want to know what's going on or what happened but but you know we'll we'll keep calling them and we'll keep taking their no comments as as, a, <laughs> as an answer but you know we the the phone lines are open if they, if they would like to talk about it please they do have some explaining to do and we will keep doing stories that put them into that light you're listening to this week in the CLE With other states lifting their coronavirus restrictions, what will it take for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to end his overnight curfews? Jane Cahoon, he's kind of on the hot seat because even in Los Angeles, they're lifting their (laughs) their restrictions. It's like, what does it really take to do this? The numbers are dropping. They're dropping pretty, pretty quickly. Why do we still have a curfew? Well, I think we soon won't. That's the fact. But this is all about the COVID-19 hospitalizations, which, as we've said before on this podcast, that's one of the best indicators to look at to see how the virus is spreading or not. And DeWine said on Tuesday that if the number of hospitalizations remains below 3,500 for seven straight days, and we're just about there, we've we've been there since January 20th, he'll uh, change the overnight curfew on Thursday and make it 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. instead of starting it at 10 p.m. And then it would stay there for another two weeks. And then if the hospitalizations continue to dip and they stay below 3,000 for another seven straight days, he's going to change it to midnight. And then if they go below that and stay below 2,500 for another seven days in a row, he'll he's going to lift the curfew altogether. So we're maybe a few weeks, several weeks out from from not having this curfew. But I think what he's, uh, you know, to maybe more directly answer your question, what he's worried about is the these variants, you know, the more contagious variants of the virus that are out there now and the unpredictable nature of the of the virus where, you know, if that thing takes off and, you know, as we know, the pace of vaccinations has been pretty slow and 
So if that takes off before we can get enough people vaccinated, we could have we could have a big problem again. Can I just ask a question there? Laura Johnson. Because I just thought, who, we still have a stay at home order in Cuyahoga County. And like, we're still supposed to be like not interacting with other people. So I just, I just don't understand how dropping the curfew. Well, it's not an order though. Remember the stay at home is an advisory. So the curfew has more, more heft to it. It does have more heft. I just wonder who is out at that time. And what they're doing if we're all supposed to be still staying home to, you know, stop the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, we're all getting too old to to realize what's what's going on out there in the world <laughs> at 10 p.m. to midnight. Well, well, restaurant districts are pretty crowded. I mean, I mean, people are going to restaurants and and in large numbers, they just can't be there after 10. I think. Well, and it's going to change though the the liquor hours because wasn't the last drink supposed to be served at ten and they could close at eleven before this curfew went to effect? So is is this going to change that? I think I'm pretty sure that might have expired and okay. got kind of overtaken by the curfew because the curfew applies to people and if you're not allowed to to be in a restaurant or you're not you know they're not allowed to serve you. I guess Chris Warnowski. I, I I would urge some caution. I think I, I think people are looking at California as as an example of well they're opening up we should. I, I mean California is a disaster and <laughs> and I know a lot of people who are not happy that that Gavin Newsom has decided to lift those restrictions, especially considering how hard things are are are, are for a lot of people there right now. And I think you know, our rush to, to reopen back in the summer and then late fall, I think, you know, just because we have some, uh, you know, some positive numbers doesn't mean we should just rush to reopen everything again, because the last time we did that, everybody said, well, pandemic's over. And, and, you know, we had a massive surge of cases. So, you know, I, I hope they take a measured and cautious approach. It seems like he, he kind of is at this point, but, we saw what happened last time, and I think I think we have to be careful. You know, just 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 because we got some good news doesn't mean we're out of the out of the woods yet. And okay, be the voice of reason. We're all trying to be excited, <laughs> and you can put a dampen on it. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How did Kirtland Schools take quick action to deal with the coronavirus crisis? Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi put together a nice piece on this yesterday. What did she find? Yeah, she was ready to rip into them like she's done to a whole bunch of school districts this year for not giving parents enough time to make plans. They decided on a Sunday that they were going remote the next day. She called up the superintendent. She talked to them and she totally changed her mind because the superintendent was straightforward and empathetic in explaining his decision. He didn't use jargon or double talk, and he acknowledged how difficult it was for families. Simply, he said the numbers were increasing really quickly in the district. He talked to the health commissioner, and they decided to shut down, uh, go remote for 10 days and end school sports as well to try to keep the numbers down. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting because parents were very offended by this to get the last minute notice and they didn't have child care. But but he he saw this as like people could get sick and die. I've got to take quick action. It's an it's an interesting thing. You you would have been quite offended, I think, to get that note from your district on short notice. Right. Yeah, I would have been. I'm lucky in that, like, I wouldn't have, you know, I work from home. My husband's working from home. So and this uh, school district had been on a hybrid plan. So they were ready to go back starting full time this week. And I have to say my kids went back full time this week and it is glorious. So I, you know, I, I look forward to the day that Kirtland parents can do this, but I do 
I think that Layla gets it right in that we just want to be talked to honestly and not jerked around for no reason. And so if you explain the reasoning and the science, I think people are going to be a whole lot more able to understand your viewpoint and follow it. A lesson for the Cuyahoga County Health Department. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, Chris, I knew I was hoping we'd get to this one. I know you want to talk about it. Why did Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer have to resort to legal action to get camera footage from Cleveland police, footage that is defined by state laws public? And how does this all relate to what Parma did? Go ahead, Chris, have at it. So there was this case that that two police officers in Cleveland were charged with crimes last Friday, and we actually, Adam managed to get a really good story out about exactly what they're accused of doing if if you want to go to cleveland.com today and check that story out i but that's not what this is about so so but to to and adam had requested a bunch of body camera video from the cleveland police department that was related to this investigation and the charges that that came up against them and and the city rejected our public records request saying that it was part of an ongoing investigation what happened in the meantime was yesterday, the Parma Police Department, uh, a couple of days after it happened, gave us over a half an hour of body cam and dash cam video related to the arrest of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson, proving that not only is it possible to uh, adhere to the open records law, but you can do it in an expeditious fashion, which Cleveland also tends to struggle with when it comes to public records requests. And so as a result of this, we had to do something that is, it's kind of a new thing. It, this, this, this became a tool for us a, a couple of years ago with the ability to file um, challenges to rejections of public records requests with the Ohio Court of Claims. And we actually have a pretty good record of winning these against various police departments and government agencies. So, so we filed that yesterday and, you know, hopefully this won't take too long, but you know, hopefully we can get this video of this in, this August 22nd incident from from Cleveland. Hopefully the court of claims will rule in our favor. Yeah, it's it's silly that they withhold this kind of thing because it's going to come out. So just get it out. You can't duck it. You can't protect the officers. It's public record. We will get it. It'll show everything. So all you do is go through the blistering uh, period where we're complaining about your failure to follow records. It is, I mean, it is, it is pretty staggering. I, the difference between when we request these things from suburban police departments versus what happens when we do it with the city is, is pretty mind blowing. And it's, it would be funny if it weren't a, a, a serious violation of public trust. You know, I talked to both Kevin Kelly and Justin Bibb before they started their run for mayor. And I didn't ask about this. We need to get them on the record about this because the next mayor of Cleveland has got to be more transparent with police records. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Lots of good stories to discuss today. I still am blown away by the Amy Acton news. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 